Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this season, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on every single goddamn page in a trio of adventure modules for TSR's Marvel Super Heroes RPG, starting with Adventure MT1, All This and World War II. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. All This and World War II was written by Ray Winninger and published in 1989 by TSR. Congratulations, time ladies, time lords, gender queer, time gentry of all descriptions. We have made it through all this and World War II. Today, I'm just going to do a wrap up of the whole module. Very casual, very loose. I've got a cup of tea here. I I want you to imagine that the rest of this season so far has been a series of lectures in a really weird course that you're taking at university. And today, it's more like you've come to see the professor and you sit down in the professor's office and the professor is drinking his tea out of his thermos because he had to quit drinking coffee because he's getting old, the only thing I actually have in common with actual professors, and you just get to have a looser, more opinionated chat about the material. That's what this is. Yes, I did just promise you a more opinionated version of MDC. I feel like maybe I can't deliver that, but the general overview is, I want to talk about the things that I really liked about this module, the things that would make it worth running for me if I decided to run it, and just in general, I want to give credit to the elements that make it interesting, Everything I've ever talked about on Mega Dumbcast, wherever it lands on the scale of how dumb it is and how bad it is, which are not necessarily the same thing, everything I've talked about has at least been interesting to me. It's had some element that makes me want to talk about it and wrestle with it, so I want to talk about what that is for this module. After that, conversely, I want to talk about some of the cons, but it's not just all the little things that bug me because, you know, that's what the show is. Instead, I kind of want to do a little bit of triage, like if I'm going to run this, What are my big concerns? Like, this is not going to work. This is not going to be fun. What are the things I need to fix going in on a macro scale? What are the issues with this module? And then after that, I'm going to wrap up with some real sketchy point by point notes about all the significant things I'd want to change throughout this module to make it run better if I were actually going to bring it to the table, mostly based on the big issues that I identified earlier. And then at the end, I'll do a little note about what's happening with the show moving forward, when you can expect more MDC, when you can expect those superheroes that I promised you, etc. So let's start with the things that I liked. One really big thing is the World War II setting. It's a great choice for a time travel superhero story. There are a bunch of World War II superheroes and supervillains who feel quite different from modern superheroes and supervillains. So you've got a bunch of superhero content ready to go that can be put in conversation with modern characters, and it's interesting. World War II obviously is like a dramatic time that everybody's familiar with, so you have lots of options for mundane history, and then when you throw characters like Captain America or Sergeant Fury into the mix, Red Skull, then you've really got great potential for a kind of theme park adventure where we get to visit all our favorite parts of the fictional adventure setting of World War II, as opposed to historical World War II, which famously was not an enjoyable park experience. I mean, I'd rather go to Knott's Berry Farm than World War II. Um, I really love the invaders being in this adventure, and I really like the way they're used, too. The fact that they come in partway through the adventure, the fact that they get to be part-time player characters, so you get to meet them as NPCs, then you get to play them in a World War II setting and have them meet modern characters. You kind of get everything you want from them. I think it's very clever and very fun the way that they are woven into the story so that they don't steal the spotlight from the player characters, but you really get to use those fun characters in every way you'd want to use them. As I mentioned in the main season, I would have loved to see Spitfire here. Uh, She is a canonical member of the Invaders. I would have been just fine seeing Toro cut in her favor. But the Invaders who are here, even Toro, are relatively interesting to the extent that you know how to use them. Like, everybody's going to love Namor and Captain America. But I think Union Jack is cool, too, if you know who Union Jack is. 
the split party setup is particularly cool where you split up into two teams, which are each half invaders and half modern heroes. That lets the old heroes and the new heroes really mix it up, and it gives everybody a chance to take a turn playing an invader. And nobody has to give up their characters so that we can spend time with Captain America or Namor or whoever. Speaking of the characters from this era, I like the villain selection. Obviously, you were always going to have Red Skull. That was never a question. I think Baron Zemo is a good choice. I've got a soft spot for Zemo and his adhesive X, a very silly comic book idea that I do love. Baron Blood in particular, he's very much a marquee invaders villain, if such a thing exists. But nonetheless, I really appreciate his presence here because he provides a different kind of antagonism and he provides something that is not just like more World War II shit. Like, I love World War II shit. And I think it's great that that's what this module is about. But at a certain point, like we've had a lot of tanks, we've had a lot of Nazis, we've had a lot of bunkers and bombers. It's nice to just have a vampire, like a World War II flavored vampire, but still a vampire, not on the normal checklist of World War II tropes. So he fits, but he's sort of in excess of just the pure pastiche of World War II comics. Um, The set piece in Hitler's bunker where there's the death maze and half of the heroes are brainwashed to hunt the others, as problematic as that could be in play and as bullshit a mechanism as the author used to get the characters there, you have to admit that it's a cool scene. Very dramatic, very comic booky, gives the players a chance to do something a little different from what they're normally doing, and it's something that you see a ton in comic books, more than most people realize, and something we should see a lot more of in role-playing games, which is an action situation with lots of peril and violence that can't ultimately be solved by violence. Violence is a thing that's happening, and you've got to get past the violence to the solution, which may require more or less fighting depending on your style and, and how the dice rolls go. Great set piece, definitely keep it. Um, finally, I like ending the adventure with a big World War II battle. I think being out there on the battlefield, charging in, leading the non-powered troops into battle, fighting with Nazi tanks, having grenades and artillery hitting all around you, it's such a big part of the World War II storytelling tradition. A big full map with lots of tokens for infantry and tanks is also a cool visual and tactile way to convey the sense that there's this big battle really happening, not just sort of being described as set dressing, like fate style, like, okay, well, I'll tag the aspect... Thousands of desperate men, a writhing mass of humanity, slogging through the mud, explosions going off all around me. The world is on fire. This is the height of heroism and the depth of human despair. Um, I'll, I'll tag that, and that will give me a, a, a plus one on my roll to punch the Nazi man. You know, you can say all you want, but it doesn't feel real. Having a big map full of little cutout chits with tanks on them, as simple as it sounds, does make it feel like there's a big fight going on. So that's the stuff I liked. And you know that I prefer to stay positive on this show, but sadly, we must now turn to those things that I did not like about all this and World War II. Just the highlights. I have been talking about this for nine weeks. Uh, number one, obviously, the extreme railroading. I want to clarify, too, sometimes you get a defense of railroading. People see the term and they dislike it because I think the sense is if you want to create a compelling experience for people, if you want it to be a fun story and not just a random sequence of events... The players need to go along, you know, like to have a structure of motivation and action and consequences leading to further motivations and actions and consequences leading to characters having some kind of arc or a status quo going through a period of flux to a new status quo challenges being overcome like all that stuff kind of depends on there being like a direction and a logic that the players have to buy into and go along with rather than trying to fight the GM who's trying to like construct a story scaffolding around them as they just run around at random. And that's totally fair enough, but I don't think trying to create a logical sequence of events in a campaign is railroading. Railroading is like what we get in this module, where players who are trying to be creative and, and trying to engage the fiction, 
in good faith, like they're trying to have a good time and tell a good story. They're trying to be a collaborative member of the group. They're getting severely curtailed by either the module or the judge insisting that not only does the story need to go from point A to point B, but it has to go along such a specific route. It's not enough that you start out standing here and you end up standing there. I'm also going to dictate to you why you do that and how quickly you get there, which obstacles you overcome and which obstacles you fail at. Everything has to be as dictated. It's not that I'm trying to create a story. It's that I'm trying to create the story. There is this one story. And what I need for you is to act out what I have written your character to do in that story. And this creates a situation where, like, there's a lack of player agency. There's a lack of collaboration at the table. It takes away the back and forth of players taking action to contribute, right? Like improv style. I'm playing my character. I'm trying to create a good scene. I'm trying to have that scene contribute to some kind of a decent story. I'm trying. I'm putting something out there. And then the GM takes that, incorporates it, doesn't block it, and then contributes something of their own to try to further build this thing we're working on together. Railroading shuts that down because what the GM is trying to do is so specific and precarious that all attempts to contribute something have to be swatted away. That's why it's railroading, not highwaying, right? Like highways are stationary. I mean, I don't drive, but that's my understanding. They don't move. And if you're going to get from one place to another, there's a highway in between that I would expect you'd probably take that highway. And I can tell you with pretty high confidence which direction you're going to be moving on that highway. But there are a lot of places to get on, a lot of places to get off, sections we can skip, places we can stay. As a driver, I am not in control of the highway, but I am in control. So that's railroading. And that's the problem here. There is so much space devoted in this module to shutting down ideas for doing things differently from the way that the author imagined them. It's really a waste because there's so much cool stuff to see and do in World War II. There's so much fun to be had here. And it's a shame to see so much of this space wasted on like, now here's the, here's the one way it's supposed to go down. Now here's like half a page of all the things the players might try to do to make this a different kind of scene and how you can make that not happen, how you can block them. The best example of that is the second big thing that I, we have to change, which is the knockout traps. This may initially seem micro scale, but it's not going to feel that way after both branches of the main middle part of the plot are basically the player characters walking directly into a trap, getting KO'd unavoidably and being at the mercy of a supervillain. Having that happen once is bad enough, but having it happen twice is going to feel really bad and frustrating for the players. And it's a great example of how like not only is this bad, but it's unnecessary. In Castle Vladistopol, the players are trying to find the secret weapon, right? Which we know is on the flight deck. They go into the castle, they walk into this hallway, they get hit with the KO beam, then they get carried by Baron Blood and Baron Zemo to the secret flight deck, which is where they were fucking going. Like, there's no structural reason that they have to be knocked out and carried there. If they're in the hallway, it's because they're going to that room. They're looking for it. So this can and must be changed. It just feels like cheating on the judge's part. It's bad storytelling. It's bad structure. Gotta change those knockout traps. Significantly less important, I'd say that before the time travel starts, there's pretty weak like motivation and clue trail stuff happening at the beginning of the adventure. I kind of like that we start in the present and actually spend a little time there before we get the time machine. But in terms of like, why are we doing this? Why do we care? And what is the logic of, you know, gathering information? and then ultimately taking action, it's really weak. Like, as we discussed at the time, you have barely any reason to do any of this unless you're in a situation to be ordered to do it. And the whole, like, clue trail, it's like, you know those frustrating clothes that look like they have pockets, but actually they put 
a thing that looks like but is not a pocket in the place where a pocket could have gone. That's what the clue trail in this adventure is. It, it is space that could have been occupied by active information gathering and effective non-combat player action. And they replaced it with this simulacrum, <laughs> which is like, these are scenes that seem like they should get you information, but there are actually no choices to make. And it's just like little check boxes, which lead inevitably to a scene where no matter what you know or don't know, everything just kind of comes out and the story proceeds. So that's a missed opportunity. We're spending quite a bit of time in Albuquerque when you really think about the page count. So it would be nice if it were a real mystery. Finally, either Vision has to go or the like very wall-based structure of this adventure has to go. I really talked about this in another episode, so I'm not going to belabor it here. But if we can't find a way to make this story work without physically blocking and moving the characters around, we just have to take Vision out of the player group. Finally, in the alternate reality where I am running this module, and I am trying to make it fun for me and my players, how would this story go down? These are just sketchy notes. Like this would be my to-do list to go in and do detailed changes to the module. But here's kind of what I have in mind. Uh, first of all, as I mentioned last episode on the back cover, I think the character should have a government foil, may or may not be Nick Fury, but somebody who works for Not Quite Shield. Or you know what? It's Shield. Like I, I don't have to care about that dumbass storyline from 1989. It's Shield, and the player characters either know and trust Nick Fury, or whoever is their government liaison is working with Fury on this project, and they trust their government liaison. Better for motivation, better for trust, better for everything. Uh, number two, I think it's important that Nick Fury remember the characters from the past. Rather than doing this whole convoluted Orfu time bracelet thing, it makes the time travel story a little more complicated, but not if you hide it from the players at first. I think Nick Fury should secretly remember the characters from this weird thing that happened in World War II, but not tell them. And that's part of his motivation, at least, for bringing them in on this project where there's some indication that time travel shenanigans could happen. I wouldn't put the photo in his office, but I'd put some other kind of like souvenir from a World War II conflict in his office to serve kind of the same purpose without the player characters having to put on those bracelets in the past and without Nick Fury having to be in the dark about who he met back then. All of his decisions about including the player characters in this at all, especially as it gets like very timeline threatening. You know, it's weird that Nick Fury, after not even trusting the player characters enough to tell them what Cavalier is the day before they're going to test it, suddenly trust them enough to just like go off on their own with no official oversight in a time machine and just kind of stumble through it and try to keep World War II one for the Allies. Like Fury doesn't even tell the rest of his agency that this is going on. That makes more sense if Fury has already seen this happen in the past and knows how it's supposed to go for everything to work out well. Next up, I would start seeding the information about where the super weapons could be, like Castle Vladistopol or Hitler's secret bunker early. Have Kruppmann know, have the Blautote commandos know, have those be preset destinations in the time machine or like in the letter that's left there from Hitler. Like these are the places you could drop off your super weapon after you're done. So that way that clue is all over the place, can be gained through interrogation, it can be gained through investigating the time machine. Lots of chances to get it, and it's in the time machine, so if you don't get it before you go to the past, you can find it after you go. And this way, there's a point to interrogation, there's a, a point to sneaking around and spying on Kruppmann, maybe. Psychics can get this information pretty readily. Whatever your skill is for gathering information, you can use it and be useful, uh, rather than having that information only come from Crane's book, and the GM having to stuff it into your hands at every opportunity. Oh, I'm sorry, for those who have forgotten, uh, when I say Crane's book, what I mean is uh, World War II, Inside and Out, All the People, All the Places, and All the Events by Hamilton Crane. I don't know if you recall that one. It's been a minute. Um, I don't understand why the Blautote time machine is in San Diego. Not that it hurts the story much, because nothing happens on the way to San Diego. It's just like, in downtime, the player characters just get in a van and drive 
from New Mexico to San Diego and then go into the sewer and that's where the time machine is. I, I do not know why. I guess maybe just so that the only way you can find it is by finding the clue about where the Blautote Commandos landed, which requires you to go to Kruppman's house. But I don't understand why the author of this module wants you to go to Kruppman's house. There's nothing there. It's just a bunch of exposition lying on pieces of paper in his living room with no challenges, no excitement, no adventure. I don't know why it's important to see Kruppman's house. I think we should cut that part, have the time machine be in like a relatively well-hidden spot here in the vicinity of the base. Maybe it even initially appeared in San Diego. Kruppman went and picked up the commandos, gave them a tip like, hey, let's load up the time machine in this, you know, trailer or whatever, take it to New Mexico, and I'll show you a spot you can put it near the secure shield base where it won't turn up on their security checks or whatever. That way it's around, and if the player characters like want to go to Kruptman's house and rifle around his personal effects and figure all this out, they can. But they could also just ask the commandos where their time machine is, and if they're really good at interrogation, that'll work. Or if you're playing a scientist, they could build, you know, a chronoton detector and tune it to the Nazi time machine and go find it in the desert. Whatever. There's, there's a million ways to find it. You want the player characters to find it. Don't make them drive to San Diego. Uh, next, after the time machine lands in 1943, I would have it go off course. I think that's fine. But then have like a paradox detector inside or something go off that the player characters can see like, okay, the problem here is the time machine has landed in such a situation that it may change history in such a way that the place and time it came from don't exist anymore, thus creating a paradox, right? The events at the trip's space-time destination may erase the trip's space-time origin. Therefore, it goes into like paradox safety mode and just like freezes as a moment in time. Like the door's open, everything is visible, whatever. But like if Thor is there and he like just wails on this time machine with Mjolnir, nothing happens because it's frozen in time. It's a, it's a frozen moment. Nothing can happen. Therefore, you can leave it for the Nazis to see, but there's nothing they can do with it. The helpful note from Hitler that gives a little bit of useful exposition is lying out on the console. You can come back and read it if you forgot to read it initially. The time machine is accessible, but it's not usable until the paradox issue is resolved. We can't take it with us. We explicitly can't go home. The recall switch will not work right now. We just have to go, which I think is the intention of the scene. But this just accomplishes it a little more neatly than having it like land funny in a hole. Like there's something comical about letting Hitler potentially get his hands on a time machine because you like accidentally hit your time machine into the sand trap. And it's like you take a couple swings and it's like, oh, fuck this. Just mark it down and let's move on. Uh, when we get to Hitler's bunker, I would absolutely ditch that gas trap. Instead, I think what I would do is use the hypno wash as the big trap to catch the player characters. So like my thought is, you go into the bunker, you can try to stealth if you want. If you're stealthy, you can wander around at your leisure. If you're ever noticed, then they like put the whole thing into lockdown and like turn out all the lights and send a team around with the hypno wash to try to find you because they've been tipped off you're coming and expose you to the hypno wash to brainwash you. So you kind of get a couple of chances at stealth if that's the way you want to play it. If you want to use disguise or stealth or whatever, you can walk around and eventually find the room where they're keeping the hypno wash because they don't know you're there yet. And so they're just kind of setting everything up. If you get caught while you're wandering around, then the lockdown starts and they start trying to find you with the hypno wash. If you fuck up in that scenario, then you're probably going to get brainwashed or at least, you know, captured by some other Nazi soldiers and brought to the hypno wash room. However, because Red Skull knows you're coming, Red Skull himself is posted in the room with the hypno wash. So if the alarms don't go off and they start looking for you with the hypno wash and you make your way stealthily all the way to the room where it's kept, Red Skull is there waiting for you in case you should make it all the way there. And there's a hidden, you know, alarm and trap and etc. So when you try to grab the hypno wash, which seems to be the secret weapon and maybe is in this scenario, it's maybe it is a secret weapon, then they spring their trap and try to brainwash you. The advantage of all this is that we don't know exactly where and when they're going to try to bust out this hypno wash on you. But whenever it happens, you're at a disadvantage. 
there are armed Nazis there. It's a less controlled environment, so there are lots of ways to get to this scenario, and it always makes sense to fake being brainwashed to save your life. That is a much more natural tactic to think of when you're outgunned and at a disadvantage like this. So you might get brainwashed or you might fake like you're brainwashed. There's no reason to keep the whole team immobile. You know, if one person can get away, then okay, we'll brainwash the rest of them and take them to the maze. And we've got one person on the loose and they can come and interfere with the maze thing if they want to. I don't think I'd put Hitler here. Maybe have Hitler see from a distance in some way, but I don't see any reason to put Hitler here. Too hard to keep him safe. When it comes to Romania, and I have to credit uh, Brian Beyer at Laserstar Dragon on Twitter for this idea. Instead of having the castle itself have flight doors, have an underground passage that leads to the secret flight deck farther away from the castle, then cut the whole thing with Olaf and the non-existent Romanian resistance, and instead have the two legs of this section be, number one, you go through the castle with like an optional barren blood fight and a thing where you find the secret passage under the castle. That way you get to do all your cool gothic castle stuff, which there's none of in the adventure as it stands. Like, you theoretically are going into a vampire castle, but basically you have the option of going in through the door or a window, and as soon as you do, you go into a hallway, get knocked out, and next thing you know, you're on a flight deck that might as well be on a battleship or just a generic secret base. You never really get to engage, like, the vampire castle as a setting. So I think creeping around in this castle, knowing that there's a vampire around, deciding whether to avoid or fight the vampire... And then like ultimately maybe like opening a coffin that turns out to have a stairway inside that goes down into the secret tunnel underneath. All that's cool. Then you go to the secret tunnel underneath that leads to the lab and the flight deck. That's Baron Zemo's part. I think similar to the hypnowash, the flying saucer should be trapped. Like maybe it's in a sort of cage or whatever, but there's like glue there so that if you try to get to the flying saucer, you get glued to this thing, get glued in place. The trap can be whatever, doesn't really matter. Just as in the adventure as written, this is the point when they're going to try to launch the flying saucer. If you're very sneaky and very good, you can get to the saucer and sabotage it before it starts to take off. There is a stealth way through this, right, where you like defeat the traps, avoid all the guards, sabotage the flying saucer. Alternately, you might have to try to shoot the saucer down the way that you do in the module as written. I like the idea that if you didn't fight Baron Blood back in the castle, then Zemo will call Blood to come fly in the flight deck doors and come fight you. So if you duck the vampire the first time, then you get him here, unless you kill the vampire, then come here and stealth sabotage the flying saucer. So again, lots of different options, but you don't need a ton of different scenes. They all just have a little more flexibility about how they can resolve. And of course, you might need to flee without taking down the saucer. It's possible. In any case, when you get back to American territory, I would not have Red Skull ambush you in Dozer's office. I wouldn't have Dozer be hypno-washed. I would have Anthony Holland be hypno-washed. He's not good for anything else. And he doesn't have the power to kill or delay the characters whenever he wants to. He's not the general. He's the assistant. So he can inform, which is what Dozer does in the module, but not just like have your plane shot down, which is what General Dozer mysteriously does not do in the module. In fact, I don't think I would do like the jump out and shoot you with guns ambush in the office. I think that's boring, especially at this point when you fought like roughly a million zillion Nazis in this module. Instead, what I would do is have a planning meeting that the characters are at with like Dozer and the invaders, maybe some other allied brass talking about what we're going to do in this upcoming fight. And then we can kind of lay out like, what is the superhero's role going to be? All that stuff. But there's a bomb there. And the players have multiple chances to like use different kinds of powers to notice there's a bomb and clear everybody out. If they don't, then at the last minute, Sergeant Fury runs in with the Howling Commandos and takes out the bomb and says that they caught Anthony Holland trying to spy on them. And once they figured out what he was up to, they figured out that he was a Nazi traitor and learned about the bomb. So they came and got it at the last minute. Gives the players a chance to do something cool, but if they don't, then Nick Fury takes care of it, and that can be his introduction. In any case, this reveals that there was a mole. It gives us some peril. It gives us a chance for heroism, and it gives a scene that has a point other than being ambushed. 
we do get to talk about the battle coming up. And that leads directly into what we're going to do in the fight. I think I would still have the big map with all the units on it, but not engage in the whole big war game thing. Or if I do, that would be like a side, a side thing to do. The main thing is that the superheroes need to take down the super weapon, which will be either the saucer or Red Skull with a conventional German plane with like a salvage piece from the saucer that allows it to like rain down laser destruction on ground troops. That's superhero business. So I think the players need to like go up and fight either the super weapon or the makeshift super weapon, while maybe like the Howlers and Nick Fury are on the ground with some kind of rocket launcher or like an artillery piece or something. They're in a position to take it down if the player characters can kind of like redirect it, corral it, make it fly lower, whatever the thing is, turn it upside down. I don't know. So the Howlers are waiting to take the shot. You just need to get this flying saucer where it needs to go or disable it so it can't go so fast or whatever. We fight, fight, fight. We take down the flying saucer. Either the saucer or the salvage part of the saucer lands, and I think that is Nick Fury's souvenir, because I think at the very end, he comes over to the heroes from the present and is like, I never heard of you, but thanks for helping us take that thing down. I don't know what the hell it was. I managed to scrounge up this piece of it that fell to the ground. Allied Command says they're going to confiscate it. They got to take it away for research. Going to have the eggheads figure out what it was. But if I don't get to keep it, I'm going to at least leave my mark on it. And then he like turns it around and he and all of the howlers have like scratched their initials in the back of it. So if Allied Command like keeps this secret future alien tech or whatever, and it's going to be in a warehouse, at least it's going to have all the howlers have initialed it, you know, since they were the ones who took it down and they offer it to the heroes to initial it as well. So then when the heroes come back to the present, Nick Fury's there to greet them. And now that he knows that they know that all this happened, he can come clean and he shows them the souvenir and there are their initials on the back of it. And he would say... What we've been doing here is like time travel, super weapon research that all stems out of the research that the Allies started doing when they captured this piece of the super weapon. When time came around for us to test it, all of our readings indicated time travel stuff was going to happen. And I remembered that you were all part of it. So that's why I brought you here. Sorry for not cluing you in, but I needed everything to go just the way I remembered it. Everything hangs together. Everything makes sense. Everything's well motivated. And he may even have clearance as director of S.H.I.E.L.D. to hand this thing off. You know, it's been studied for decades at this point. Maybe they've reached the point in the project where they don't need this original captured piece anymore, and he can hand it off to the player characters for them to go display in their Hall of Trophies in their headquarters, which they built at the beginning of this module and have never been to because they were in World War II the whole time. The end. So that's how I would run it. Obviously, you could do this any number of different ways, but that's just kind of an example of like the sort of thing I'd be doing to prep running it if anybody out there is interested in attempting it, which... I am, honestly. If I were ever going to run a Marvel Superheroes mini campaign or something, I think you could do worse than at least basing your adventure on this module. Anyway, that is a wrap on the first part of this season, but the next part is coming very soon. I'm going to be taking a week off of daily episodes on the main feed. That's going to give me time to prepare all my like music and templates and all the other things that go into a season of MDC. I'm going to do that again for the next leg of this season, which is going to be about the Weird Weird West. Uh, which is the second module in the Time Warp series. So we're going to be going from World War II to Western. Those episodes are going to start coming out on the daily feed on Monday, August 2nd. In the meantime, though, this intervening week, patrons, you are going to be getting daily or nearly daily episodes covering the superheroes, headquarters, team charter, super vehicle, etc. of the Misfits over on the Patreon feed. I got my wife Katrina to play the role of a Time Variance Authority agent, reading out the TVA data files on these various superheroes. So the episodes are going to start with that, and then they're going to go into me out of character talking about the character creation process, what I rolled to create these characters, and then how I sort of pieced them together narratively into the concepts that I ultimately came up with. So I like these characters. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. 
And it's going to be something for patrons to listen to while they're waiting for Weird Weird West to come out. I think that's it. So thank you for joining me for this first book in the trio. Patrons, I'll see you on Monday 26th for character creation and team creation bonus episodes about the Misfits and everyone else. I'll see you starting Monday, August the 2nd for daily coverage of module MT2, Weird Weird West on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact the show however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Podbean, Gmail, Instagram, etc., etc. This episode's theme music is Robinson's Grand Entry March, performed by the United States Air Force Concert Band. Thanks for listening.